0: And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
1: And you're listening to Paranormal Now on the Inception Radio Network. I'm your host, Alan B. Smith, and I welcome you to join us as we traverse the cosmic highway of paranormal pit stops and tantalizing turnoffs. If you're a regular listener to IRN... We have an IRN smartphone app where you can listen live to the live stream from home on the road or from that greasy diner somewhere off a dusty road. Um, As you all know, this is a podcast broadcast weekly on Saturday nights, 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, But for those of you who listen to the Inception Radio Network uh, frequently, there are so many other ways for you to listen. You can listen to live 365 Stitcher Radio Nobex Radio, TuneIn, iTunes Radio, Streama, Shoutcast, WinApp, Win Media Player, QuickTime, and IRN Roku Channel. And of course, if you're at home and your uh, internet goes down, you can always call in at 401 283 6700 and listen to the live 24 hour stream on the Inception Radio Network. Uh, welcome back, everybody, and it has been a while, the brief hiatus from the airways. And I thank you for tuning in once again. Uh, We have a very interesting topic tonight. I'm very excited. Um, This is actually a topic that I've been wanting to dive into um, more so as of late, and we've sort of just been brushing up the edge of it, um, you know, on other shows. And now we get a chance to really dive in deep with uh, author Joseph Selby. And he is the author of The Physics of God, Unifying Quantum Physics, Consciousness, M-Theory, heaven neuroscience and transcendence a little bit about the book itself compelling and concise the physics of god will make you believe in the unity of science and religion and eager to experience the personal transcendence that is the promise of both the physics of god is reader friendly combining humor and well-chosen analogies to make complex subjects both scientific and spiritual easy to understand there's no math and there's no dogma Unlike many books in this genre that compare only a few concepts of religion with a few facts of science, facets of science, The Physics of God is complete. This short book concisely connects all the dots between science and the timeless concerns of religion, miracles, heaven, immortality, consciousness, transcendence, and God. And a little bit about the author, Joseph Selby. Um, Joseph makes the complex and obscure simple and clear. He is a dedicated meditator for over 40 years he has taught yoga and meditation throughout the us and europe he has also been an avid follower of the unfolding new paradigm of science with groaning bookshelves to show for it and he is known for creating bridges of understanding between the modern evidence-based discoveries of science and the ancient experience-based discoveries of the mystics selby maintains several blogs including intersections Which explores how spirituality connects with culture and science he has also authored the yugas a factual look at india's tradition of cyclical history and a sci-fi fantasy series the protector's diaries inspired by the abilities of mystics selby is a founder member of ananda a meditation-based community and spiritual movement inspired by paramansa yogananda he lives with his wife at Ananda Village near Nevada City, California. Welcome to the show, Joseph.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I'm really excited because I love walking that line between science and spirituality. Um, Science and the paranormal, you know, would be another way to phrase that. And I think most people being spiritual um, and believers in science have, if nothing else, you know, a passing curiosity, but a curiosity nonetheless about what science could reveal about their religion or their spirituality. Um, So my hope is that maybe you can enlighten us a little bit. Um, Obviously, you know, myself and, and the many listeners, you know, that are into this program and other programs like it you know we we are scouring the internet we're we're waiting for that next article to get our attention um about quantum physics um and I think one of the one of the minds that had really um set the momentum forward um was um uh the field and I'm sure you've read the field by Lynn mcTaggart and also um uh, the, you know the movies flipping slipping my name now down the rabbit hole um I'm sure you'll know the documentary I'm speaking of. <laughs> anyway, the point yeah. is, uh, the point is, we are seeking. Um, and so what do you have to share with us that can help us feel a little bit more satisfied about this sort of um, bringing together of, of science and spirituality?
2: Well, what I set out to do in the book was really to show that there is no line between science and spirituality. There is and can only be one reality. There aren't multiple realities. There aren't realities for the skeptics and realities for the ultra-religious. There's just one reality. So I went forward with the conviction, based on my own experience and mm-hmm. lots of readings of those books that are making my uh, bookshelves grown, to really establish that Science already supports spirituality, it already supports religion, it already supports the paranormal. Why it doesn't appear as if that's the case is because within the world of science, and remember, science is just a method of making discoveries, it's a very Mm -hmm. methodical, it's a very brilliant process, but it's just a process And out of that comes discoveries. And then people, like you and I, take those discoveries and they put them together into more complex sets of theories. And they come up with an opinion about how the world works, how the universe works, how the cosmos works. But it's really an opinion, uh, a collection Of discoveries that they have latched onto.
1: So you think this is a a problem of perception or?
2: Well there's a very strong group of voices that are scientists who are believers in what's known as scientific materialism and it's a belief system. They've taken uh, the discoveries that they wanna take from science, and they put them all together, and they say, based on this, all of the claims of religion and the paranormal can't be true. Because what we believe all those discoveries are telling us is that everything that is, everything that ever will be, Mm -hmm. is the result of interactions between matter and energy. And absolutely nothing else but it's a belief system because they still based on that assumption have not shown us how life could have originated they haven't shown us how consciousness could have originated they haven't answered some of their own fundamental questions such as the observer paradox that it's a heart at the heart of quantum physics they sort of when pressed, scientific materialists will say, well, we're getting closer to solving that. We have some great ideas about how life could have originated, perhaps when amino acids came in contact with a crystal and the uh, inherent lattice organization of the crystal Caused the amino acids to line up in its own crystal, and that forms some of the building block molecules of life, and then it went from there. Well, it's, it's a great theory, but they've not found anything to support it. So, we have this very strong voice of scientific materialism, not only among scientists, but throughout the world, that is at its best a collection of good solid facts, but at its fringes, at its margins, is really a belief system that the unanswered questions will eventually be answered, proving scientific materialism to be
0: true. But you know, until they are, it's just a belief. It's just a
1: Well, do right within, think, in, Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: I was just going to say, right within science, there are discoveries that have been made mm-hmm. that confound scientific materialism. I mm-hmm. mentioned one, the, the uh, intelligent observer paradox. It's like this gaping hole in the middle of science, uh, <laughs> unexplained gaping hole in the middle it, of science.
1: It's like a paranormal hole in the middle of science.
2: Exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. And yet it's been kind of papered over in a sense with quantum mechanics. So, quantum mechanics was the resulting solution within um, basically the emerging world of quantum physics to come to some specific outcomes given that what quantum physics had already discovered is that matter can behave as a wave or it can behave as a particle that you can only know uh, half of two opposing aspects of any particular uh, atom or molecule. You can know its momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can know its position, but you can't know both at the same time. That's, Heisenberg's well-known uncertainty principle. All of these things, combined with the observer paradox, which is really the most uh, weird of all the quantum weirdness, kept them from using classical mathematics to predict the outcome of interactions between molecules and atoms. So they came up with quantum mechanics, which uh, combines classical mathematics with probability theory and the mathematics of probability theory, and between the two of them, they're able to predict the highest likelihood of something happening because they couldn't know things with certainty, and that highest likelihood is extremely exact, oddly enough, even though quantum mechanics is a blend of probability theory
3: mm-hmm.
2: with classical mathematics, it's very, very exact. So they they just got to leap over quantum weirdness. They got to say, we don't really need to know why there is the uncertainty principle. We really don't need to know why the intelligent observer paradox is true. We
1: have this math that lets us just jump over it. So it's kind of like just putting it on the back burner and saying, "Well, it's not so relevant, but it is very fundamental." So I would think that it is very relevant. Um but, you know, to you know, to see things from their pers- from their side. Um I think it is kind of a fair argument to say um, well, you know what? We don't know that much about the the human mind and where the mind itself originates. Um or we don't really understand the mo- the um, complete um, structure of the universe um, down to its you know the tiniest particles and and um, physics uh, laws of physics, but we just need more time. We just need more and time. And
2: that's their argument. That's mm-hmm. their argument. And maybe. But don't many you think that that's f- it's fi- yeah?
1: I mean, I think it's a fair argument to some degree, um, because like many other sciences, you know they you know science is sort of malleable because like you said like you can learn one aspect of it and you're right you have this collection of facts and those facts make sense but in a broader uh sense um, you start to realize oh there are other factors that we can bring into this and now we're better at treating this disease or now we're better at at, you know creating um you know metamaterials or whatever it is you know what i mean
2: yeah, exactly, uh, and, and what they've, the scientific materialists, I don't want to say science, I want to be very careful, mm-hmm. people who have adopted scientific materialism as their point of view are pretty much forced to just kind of up to the margins in discoveries that don't fit scientific materialism, and so they were the ones who came up with the term paranormal so that they could um uh, easily and and convincingly just kind of keep throwing things in that basket of paranormal with the kind of you know wink wink nudge nudge that anybody who addresses these kind of things or who are interested in these kind of things must be a little off so they've they've managed to characterize a whole slate of non-conforming discoveries, Mm non-conforming to scientific materialism by just shoving them to the side and kind of illegitimizing them. But they're not going away. There's more and more and more evidence all the time for things like mental telepathy, for telekinesis, for the ability of the mind to affect the body. There's very solidly collected evidence that shows people who have, for example, this is one of my favorite uh, bits of evidence, people who suffer from uh, multiple personality disorder, who have numerous personalities who, you know, come forward and then recede and another personality comes forward. Fascinating research has been done into the thousands of cases in clinical situations with scientific measuring, measuring devices available to the researchers, and they found that not only do people have different personalities, mm-hmm. but each personality brings with it instantaneous physiological changes. So one personality would be allergic to bees, Perhaps get stung. Another personality comes in, and that reaction goes away immediately. Huh. Some some personalities have moles, and scars that other personalities don't have. Okay. Some personalities. There's one poor woman. It's not a it's not a uh, enviable condition to be in. Mm -hmm. multiple personalities, usually the result of some extreme trauma. But one poor woman had over 10 personalities and she carried 10 different pairs of glasses in her purse Wow! because each personality has a different need, different prescription for them to be able to see. And it's not affected if you measure them, there was another personality that went through 10 changes within an hour. Mm -hmm. And an ophthalmologist measured each personality across things like visual acuity, uh, tension within the eyeball, curvature of the eyeball, color of the iris. And all 10 personalities had distinctly different sets of readings
1: Wait, you said co- color iris. of the color of the iris.
2: One of them has a different color iris
1: from the well, others. Ha- how does that happen?
2: Well, that is the sixty-four-dollar question, and it doesn't mm-hmm. get answered by scientific materialism.
1: Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe it could if if. Um, well, I, I see what you're, what you're saying, but I'm wondering if you know our our minds are the impetus for our um evolution um you know i was just reading this this article and i'll just you know quote you really quick here uh from it uh, when we talk about human evolution we usually talk about how we evolved into humans how we lost body hair gained brain mass started to walk on two feet and short things that happened millions of years ago but evolution did not stop when the first humans emerged a new study of two massive genetic databases, one in the United Kingdom and one in California, suggests genetic mutations that shorten lifespans have been weeded out since and are possibly still in the process of being weeded out today. And I and I wonder like you said they're they're looking for the genetic coding for this but maybe maybe it is our minds that are you know Hand, hand in hand with our bodies as part of the evolution itself that our minds are pushing because if our, if our minds can create a reaction or a non-reaction to a, a, a bee sting or some sort of outside stimuli then our minds may also be able to force our bodies to adapt
2: and I, I agree with that I mean I think it's, it's true but it begs the question how does our mind do that so every biochemical model for how the body works requires some time for those effects to cascade through the body there are uh, ample there's ample evidence that the placebo effect starts with the mind but then through the mind releasing neuropeptides or affecting the endocrine system or another cascade of effects, the body gradually changes to the expectation of the mind. Mm -hmm. So you, you can argue, if you just look at the placebo effect, that the mind is the trigger for biochemical effects. But when it happens instantaneously, as it does with the multiple personality sufferers and some of the effects indicate the presence of different DNA such as eye color there's really no explanation for the mind body response that is the uh, you know currently understood mm-hmm. that can explain that it's too in science in scientific
1: materialism I understand okay.
2: correct correct now Uh, I think that what this indicates is where where you were going, is that our minds are tremendously powerful instruments and that we're still coming to understand them. And one of the things I should toss in here at this point, one of the things that I do in my book is I give equal credibility to uh, how the... Saints and sages, the the mystics and the masters of the world, describe their experiences
3: mm-hmm.
2: to blend them with how scientific discoveries uh, indicate how our reality is shaped. And so i'm not uh, I'm not able to tell you that science supports every last detail of the paranormal to the extent that science normally expects to do things. But I can tell you that there is a deep congruence between the way reality is described by those who have had transcendent experiences Mm -hmm. and the way reality is described by uh, some scientists, not all scientists, because many scientists are scientific materialists, but not all, 51% of scientists are not scientific materialists. They believe in God. They believe in a higher power. Wait, they I'm believe sorry. What, in a higher consciousness?
1: What percentage was that?
2: Fifty-one percent. That's pretty big. To yeah, that's pretty big. That's according to a Pew study done in two thousand and
1: nine. you know, it it's very interesting because the you know some of the more prominent, outspoken scientists would would have you believe otherwise.
2: It's a vocal minority. And it's also a vocal minority that controls most of the uh, journals that Mm -hmm. our uh, articles are submitted to. And it's very, very difficult to get any article, any study published in one of the most prestigious uh, journals that doesn't follow the exact script of scientific materialism. But they really have a lock on that aspect of scientific materialism of what most people think is science
1: where in fact they are a minority yeah i um no i I know i've heard you know i won't drop any names here but you know scientists that we see on tv often um, I've heard that they have referred to other scientists being uh, religious, but they do make it sound like, you know, the majority of, of scientists are, um, are not. Um, and you know, they haven't made that claim, but, you know, uh, in their wording they do. And that that worries me because for those who are more religious in, in their dogma than scientific, can can perceive that um and they can perceive that as an affront to their uh, belief system um and i and i'm glad and people should be if they're an atheist be be loud and proud about it um you know I'm, i I always joke around but I, I you know i call myself a part-time atheist that's because i swing back back and forth in my mind um you know but but if you really i, I feel like if you want to bridge that gap the way you communicate is um, paramount, and I feel like sometimes they're dropping dropping—they're dropping the ball on that.
3: Well, and
2: I think many, you know, the, the scientists that you see, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is everywhere, True. Uh, is probably a good example. He's very personable. He's very knowledgeable, uh, clearly a scientist uh, to his core. But I don't think he would have made it to the prominence that he has if he didn't believe in scientific materialism.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that, again, those scientists who don't believe in scientific materialism, like uh, Penrose is a good example, okay. he gets marginalized. He's got He's a brilliant scientist, he's got very cogent arguments for the various things he's presented, but he gets pushed to the margin because he doesn't hew the line.
1: Well, you know, Go ahead. Well, I, I think that actually comes from a place of fear because I, I think that they're afraid that if they allow that voice to be stronger, that we're gonna be become a retro society and, you know, start to throw science aside. And I think part of that is cause, you know, this whole debate of or not so much of a de- debate really, but the debate of uh climate change. Um, and then there's the climate change deniers that humans have anything to do with it, um, you know so people have can take different sides of that story, but I think scientists see that, and they go, "My goodness, you know this is really scary that people aren't you know don't trust that ninety nine percent or ninety eight percent whatever it is of scientists um you know may be right, and so I think they're afraid that there's gonna be this, this sort of rollback of you know um religious dogma you know um superseding. Um, rationality Which can be extremely dangerous to any society So I can understand if that's that's The fear, that place that they're coming from
2: Right, and they have a view Of people who Do embrace uh, Religions or the paranormal As being uh, Not Strong-minded enough To have really Understood what they're believing And why it's uh, Fundamentally In error, Mm -hmm. but I've also found. Well, and everything you say is true. I mean, I do think it's. I think it's strongly fear-driven. We saw that in particular about, I'd guess about, ten years ago when, there was a. A a real push to question, some of the theory of evolution and the mechanisms of evolution, Mm -hmm. and there was a tremendous outpouring of. you know strong thoughts to the point of anger that people didn't recognize evolution as absolutely true so i think you're right i mean they're they're defending they're defending their faith with the same kind of ardor that uh religion can get defended
1: Okay, well, you know, let's, Joseph, I'm sorry, hold that thought right there. We'll come back um, after this quick break. Um, I'm speaking with Joseph Selby, author of The Physics of God on the Inception Radio Network. This is Alan B. Smith for Paranormal Now. We will be right back. Welcome back to Paranormal Now. I'm your host, Alan B. Smith on the Inception Radio Network. And tonight's guest is Joseph Selby. Uh, the author of Physics of God. Taking us out of the break was Mea Copa by Enigma. I just can't get enough Enigma. The decades go by and I still listen to Enigma. Um, Joseph, are you a fan of Enigma? Uh, I can't say that I am. What, you were going to tell a story or make a point before we um, went to break.
2: Oh, I think I was just trying to say that while um, reputable scientists are understandably concerned about attacks on science they their fear is based as you say that that science will be thrown out somehow if any if any part of their structure of scientific discovery that that into their minds proves scientific materialism that if any part of it falls then the whole thing will come to bits and everyone will have their own opinion about what's true, et cetera. And when they talk about religion, they tend to see religion as this archaic set of superstitions that never had any underlying truth to it all along. And that it was the source of miscommunication of, of strife that led to wars and horrors. So they, they, as you said, you know they see if they don't stand strong, that mankind is going to slip back into this uh, Middle Ages kind of mentality.
1: And so they see they see it as a noble cause, or...
2: of course, yeah. I think I think they're all very noble. I have great respect for scientists of all stripes. I think that they have very disciplined minds. They're very clever. They just tease out little bits of discovery by just thinking okay if i can test this tiny thing then i can make i can move us forward an inch and they take Mm -hmm. months to figure out how to test that one tiny thing and they come up with whole new devices and ways of doing things i just i think it's fascinating but a lot of their concerns about uh you know the crazies on the paranormal left, taking over science, or uh, slipping back into a mindless religion, I think are not real. And I think that a lot of what I notice with, particularly the debunkers like Dawkins and Stenger, who believe the best defense is a good offense, who attack religion, they attack it really amateurishly and it basically because they don't understand religion. they don't they, they pick the the surface, they pick the rituals, they pick the teaching stories like uh, Noah's Ark. And they say, well, obviously Noah's Ark is impossible because you could never get two of every species onto a single ship or, what about bacteria that don't have male and female how do you get them you know so they they apply a very rational argument for many of the teaching stories of religion and they say therefore there can't be anything to this and what they miss because they don't study it i mean i've studied science far more than most of these debunkers have ever studied religion but because they don't study it they put together these straw man arguments mm-hmm. so I heard uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson whom I enjoy by the way uh, and and I watch a lot of the programs that he produces but he was asked in a and a session on a program whether he believed in God and he said well I've given it a lot of thought and I believe that if God existed, and that God had created all of the cosmos, that there would be no strife, there would be no suffering, there would be no inequality, there would be no disease. And because all of those things exist, obviously God doesn't exist. So it sounds really good, Mm But if you have much of a grasp of religion, you will just, you will see that there's not a single religion that claims what he's saying is true. That there, there's no religion that says God intended to make the world perfect. That there right. are reasons why the world we live in, even as created by God, have all these elements of strife and disease and inequality but because he said it so um you know with such certainty it actually made me laugh because i thought okay here's a man who doesn't believe in god but he's really sure what god would do if god existed
1: right right it's yeah it's
2: it's an easy it's an easy easy to topple over easy to uh Uh, win straw man argument
1: well i mean religions have been saying that for the longest time you know that that um we we don't we can't understand the um omnipresent mind of god um which you know to to some extent could sound just just like an excuse for we don't understand how the universe came to be um but and, and, and where they're... I would
2: beg to differ mm-hmm. and where I really uh, go with the book is that I don't rely on the testimony of the theologians
3: mm-hmm. who
2: make or tend to be the ones who come up with these phrases like, uh, mysterious are the ways of God. I go to the people who have actually had direct transcendent experience. Mm-hmm. which I refer to as the saints and sages. These are the, the, the masters who have had an experience that is so profound and so deep of a reality that underpins, the, the, the subtle reality that underpins all of what we see through our senses. And if you study enough of them, if you read the life stories and read the teachings of these saints and sages from as far back as you want to go, you'll find that there is very soon a compelling consistency to how they describe God. And it's not uh, the theological dogma of any one religion. You You can begin to appreciate how the the dogmas of many religions formed out of sort of an ignorant interpretation of what the original saints and sages said. But what they actually say is that there is an infinite consciousness that is intelligent, that is knowing, and that we as individuals are part of that infinite consciousness but we don't yet know it and that we have all the powers of the divine within each one of us, but we don't know how to use them. We see them being used in uh, situations like I described with the multiple personality sufferers where they use their God-given but unseen powers, to transform their bodies instantaneously. They just don't know they're doing it. We're using those powers all the time. This is what the saints and sages tell us. They just say, you are that. The kingdom of heaven is within. You are that, is what the Hindus say. That it's there and it's constantly functioning. We're just not aware of it. We're constantly creating the bodies we have. We're continuously creating the reality around us with this infinite intelligent consciousness of which we are a part. We're just unaware of it. We tend to only be aware of this outer manifestation of a chain of manifestations that is our physical body. If you stick with that testimony if you uh, don't try to reconcile all the different dogmas of all the different uh, religions around the world, but if you just knit together the testimony of the saints and sages, those mystics and masters who've realized these things for themselves, what they describe is easily supported by science. There's no stretch they describe a cosmos much like string theory describes it or aspects of quantum physics describes it or uh, quantum physicists like David Bohm describe it. And if you read the quotations of the really high-minded scientists like Einstein, like Heisenberg, like Bohr, like Bohm, like hundreds of others, The way they describe reality through the lens of what they have learned is it's very subtle. Heisenberg came up with the term potentia with a capital P to describe this underlying realm of reality out of which reality comes into existence when observed by an intelligent observer particularly the quantum physicists become they become de facto mystics when they talk about what's really happening.
1: Right. See so now I mean I, I I would lean more towards uh these descriptions. Um, you know, but you know, I was raised Catholic and um you know, it was made to sound and and, you know, Catholic um um saints and mystics of of you know days gone by you know spoke a di- little bit differently than god but you know the way we were raised was sort of uh, god was of um uh, of a singular mind um that made choices and decisions that affected our lives directly um you know but uh, but i and that that was always difficult for me to reconcile um because you know a parent um many parents do know how to raise a child without having to beat them um, and raise them to be um, good people. Um, so, you know, does pain have to be part of the growing process to be a better person? I mean, if you if you just created something by choice, would you have created something where you knew people would have to feel pain and suffer? Um, you know, I think that's, that's what makes it a challenge. But if we lean more towards your if not if perhaps not yours but what you just described as being a intelligent sort of you know omnipresent mind that is just um the substrate or a part of the universe then that i can i can accept more and that that is what i tend to lean towards more in my own personal beliefs Um, because then because then it says to me that that mind is 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 also evolving with us in, in a sense, if that makes sense to you.
2: Mm-hmm. you no, know, a lot of what you're saying is, I think the fundamentals of what you could call, you know, the perennial philosophy, the universal religion, uh, the eternal religion, that you begin to pick up on when you, you know, read extensively the lives of people from Teresa of Avila to uh, Indian mystics that you, you begin to see, oh, they're using a different language in a different time that has a different culture, but their experience is the same. And what they say in answer to that fundamental question you just asked of, you know, why did God create the universe as he did, if there's going to be pain and suffering in it, is that each one of us is self-willed, and that each one of us can make decisions and experience consequences. Now, most religions don't believe in reincarnation, or some religions don't believe in reincarnation, I should say, actually, there there are more religions more people in more religions that believe in reincarnation than not, but still, even the ones that don't, you can find hints of them referring to this law. Um, Jesus said when the, uh, the soldier chopped off the ear of someone, and a disciple was going to pick up the sword and, and run him through. Was it Peter? Uh, I forget who it was, but but he basically said, those who live by the sword die by the sword. So how can that be if you don't have more than one lifetime for that to come true? There's lots of hints that the incarnation after incarnation that we have, we're in school, we're learning. And so the pain and suffering is of our own making. And that coming back to higher awareness is not a process of undoing all our suffering. Mm -hmm. It's a process of stopping doing those things that make us suffer. And to live more in harmony with that higher consciousness that is God. And in so doing, we expand, we become self-realized, all the things that we think of as miracles or paranormal powers become normal for us because we've rediscovered we've made our way back we've learned all the lessons we need to learn to come back to that knowing
1: well you know I think that there's the we're always making analogies and metaphors in reference to um, computers in our brain Um, and now you have quantum computers and, um, you know, you can start making analogies between quantum physics and how that functions like a computer, um, like a very complex quantum computer, um, the nature of our reality. Um, you know, so you know, we have all these ways of thinking of how things function, A plus this equals that. And, um, you know, so it's, it, it, no matter how you go about it, I think the only way for from, from my mind to accept that some sort of being created things as it were with all the suffering um, is to admit that my human mind simply has not the imagination nor the ability to comprehend what the purpose or intention of that is. And again, I feel like, yes, on the one hand, it's a cop-out. But on the other hand, it's the only other explanation I can, I can think of. So when someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson says, um, "This is these are my reasons why," um, it's like, well, but you're you're postulating a being that is supposed to be, you know, this super um, intelligent that that you can't comprehend. So if you can't comprehend it, then how can you postulate on it? Um, so again, I feel like it's a it's something of a dead end and. It, like you had, excuse me, <clears throat> like you had mentioned before, um, you know, living in the, accepting the mystery of the mind of God or or something along those lines. Um, while I don't believe in a God in that sense, I do believe that embracing the mystery is part of the joy of living.
2: And I would agree. I think the other distinction I would make uh, that I think supports what you're saying is that it's not with our rational mind that we can really convince ourselves of the existence or purpose of God. It's through experience, and maybe that's what you're alluding to with the with the mystery of God, but uh, I've meditated for over 40 years now And I have absolutely no doubt of the existence of God, not because it has made me super smart or because I now have all these great arguments that I've collected, uh, or even because I was convinced by all these books I've read by saints and sages. I have no doubt that God exists because in meditation, I can feel things that have expanded me, have filled me with joy, with love, with bliss, with peace, have inspired me, have uh, brought me to great creative leaps in my own understanding that is incomparable to anything that I've ever achieved just by reasoning my way forward. And this is what's true of all the saints and sages: is that they don't—they don't have. When you when you read them, they're not describing in rational theological detail. They're describing from the heart what their experience was and how they understood what uh, God was trying to teach them or what. The infinite intelligence or the infinite consciousness. A lot of people get hung up with the word God, but it is that infinite knowing uh, consciousness that is everywhere, that interpenetrates all of reality and is the causative force of all of creation. Call it whatever you like. But these mystics and masters, and near-death experiencers who go into uh, heavenly experiences, the main thing they describe is that it's just utterly wonderful. Uh, I was moved to tears. I read a digest of story after story taken from books and articles written by near-death experiencers. Mm And they all just will say things like, it's impossible to, to describe with words. I was so moved. it I, I can't convey it. I felt like I was expanding into uh, an infinite reach that was way beyond anything I had ever experienced. I was utterly taken up in love. I felt my every atom was composed of joy. I mean, they just go... On and on and the that's the real experience of God is that is that joy is that love is that
1: bliss well you know it's, it's an interesting thing um, because I've, I've come you know to at, at this point in my life I've come to find that I am most at peace when i am feeling most grateful and from an evolutionary standpoint it seems an odd way for the brain to be satisfied it seems that why would you what reason does the mind have to evolve or the the body brain evolve to the point where you have to feel grateful that that's a quintessential part of being happy because you know if we are just a super smart biological species um then we should be happy when we have um, you know the all the essentials right but this but we don't need the sense of gratitude itself it, you know you just why, why don't we just get up in the morning do our thing, do what we have to do and go to bed? You know, why is it when we have a new discovery, it's like, oh, this is so fantastic, and you're grateful for it, you know? Um, sometimes you wake up and you think, wow, I love this job, if you're lucky to have a job like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And you're grateful. I feel like that's when you're not just getting like a, a jolt of of serotonin rush or, or, or what whatever hormone. It's a much more grounded uh, sense of, of joy. Um, at least this is what I found, you know, as, a, as I'm getting older. Um, and I don't know, it just seems an odd way that biology would program our brain to have that sort of reward through such a an emotion.
2: Right. Yeah, the evolutionary theory as it stands really can't account for altruism except as a very kind of indirect survival mechanism.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But people who are in the serving professions, you know, the nurses, the teachers, the doctors, who, well, doctors make a lot of money, but many people in the serving professions don't, firemen, they feel a deep sense of satisfaction in helping other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's hard to justify through some evolutionary theory that that's hardwired into your being Uh, and that you get a uh, serotonin response when when you help someone. But it's at the heart of the spiritual experience is that when you um, consider realities beyond your own small self, you expand. And when you expand, you feel better. The more you expand, the better you feel the more you serve, the better you feel. The more you take in the needs of others or the opinions of others, the better you feel. Because you're you're moving away from this very, very narrow identification that we tend to have with just our needs, with our uh, situation. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just the that's just the glimmer of the expansion and love and joy that you can feel. In a sense, meditation, which I started talking about, is a scientific, methodical way to expand beyond the boundaries of your little mind and little body. And when you when you do that, you also sort of come back to your experience with a natural. Desire to help others, to serve others, to feel grateful, to um, feel yourself benefited just by being, and not by having or doing.
1: Right, and I, you know, I want to preface that um, before doing this interview, I have not been able to read the book because this was sort of a semi-last-minute um, get-together, but. Um, I still want to ask you a question, whether it's in the book or not, I'm not sure, but when we come back from this next break, um, I want to ask you about love and, you know, sort of dove, dovetail off of what we've been speaking about here, you know, where does love, the the sensation of love, love itself, where does that play as a factor into our very existence um, in the grand scheme of things, so... <laughs> Not a not a, a not a not a small question. So a great <laughs> question. We'll uh, we'll be right back after this uh, quick break. This is Alan B. Smith for Paranormal Now, um, and uh, my guest is Joseph Selby, author of The Physics of God. Stay tuned. We shall be right back. Welcome back to Paranormal Now. This is Alan B. Smith, your host on the Inception Radio Network, and taking us out of the break was Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher and Higher, Jackie Wilson. One of the greatest songs of the of the 60s and of maybe of all time um anyway <laughs> actually when that, that phrasing made me reminded me of a politician anyway i'll leave it at that um but w- welcome back to paranormal now and um the uh our guest tonight is joseph selby author of the physics of god and um this has really been a, a compelling conversation I'm, I'm really enjoying it um so joseph i had asked you before we took the break. Um, if you could expand um, and expound and explain to us um, what you think love is and, and how it fits into the grand scheme of things.
2: It's a great question. It actually gives me a chance to kind of segue a bit away from just talking about religion in uh, its own context mm-hmm. and bring the discussion back to where we began, which is this unity of the underlying discoveries of science and the underlying uh, tenets of religion, or the testimony of the saints and sages. And I'll answer your question in a way that uh, allows me to kind of bring in some of those fundamental scientific discoveries. So the saints and sages would say, we don't feel love in our physical bodies. They would say that we feel love in our subtle body, in our energy body, or astral body, etheric body, spirit body. It's a term that you'll find everywhere in mystical teachings. And that in fact, most of what we think of as ourselves, our vitality, our life force, our likes and dislikes, our our will, our creative uh, visualization and our feelings, according to the saints and sages, they're seated in the subtle body. And although we experience physiological results of those feelings, The heart of those feelings is in the subtle, is in the subtle energy. So, how then could science support the notion that we have this subtler reality uh, that is interpenetrating with our physical body? And I I got a lot of the support for many of the things I find in the book, or just explained in the book from string theory and particularly M theory. So this is gonna be a little bit of a digression to come back to where we feel love. But string theory started off trying to explain why there is so much energy in the cosmos compared in quantum physics compared to the theories of relativity. The theories of relativity can add up a certain amount of background radiation, the cosmological constant, different uh, measurements of energy that has to be present sort of in the fabric of the universe in order to explain why the universe behaves the way it does. So quantum physics, which, typically starts with the tiny, and then tries to expand to the macro. If they use their calculations that describe the tiny, the entire universe should have vastly more energy in it than has ever been uh, able to be detected. And if it did have that much, Energy in it. It's like a factor of 122, that much bigger than the amount of energy uh, predicted by relativity. And if it were present in the physical universe, the physical universe would behave far differently than it does. So quantum physicists ask themselves where is this energy? We believe it's got to be there, otherwise, atoms wouldn't behave the way they do. That matter itself would not be able to exist were it not for this vast field of energy. And in fact, the famous Higgs boson and the you know, triumphant uh, locating of where it is in terms of uh, its, its place in the whole spectrum of subatomic particles, was really proof of the Higgs field. And the Higgs field is a much more important thing. The Higgs boson by itself is interesting, but it's the fact that it uh, confirmed the existence of a of a universal field of energy that does not diminish with distance. It's not a magnetic field that quickly uh, tails off in strength the farther Mm -hmm. it is away from the magnet. It's equally potent everywhere in the universe. So if this exists, why does the universe not just kind of explode into the distance? Because there would be so much energy in it that all the stars would be rocketing away from us. And in fact, the universe would never have formed at all as it has if that energy were present physically. Sure. So, so the string theorists say, well, this energy has to exist, but maybe it exists in other dimensions that are uh, unmeasurable from our three physical dimensions, but that they definitely exist. And there are two sort of theories, one of which they started with and kind of abandoned after a while, was that these dimensions are kind of wrapped into themselves. So they sort of curl into these tiny subspaces. And then all this extra energy that exists in the universe is actually in these tiny spaces. And then another theory came along was that, well, it would actually be easier to explain if these weren't tiny, but they were enormous, but they were only two-dimensional. And this is where we get M-theory and brain theory from.
1: As so you said wait, they're both tiny and enormous or just enormous but two-dimensional?
2: So the tiny theory, uh, there are still adherents to the tiny dimensions theory, mm-hmm. but it became more uh, workable. It answered more questions, essentially, to do the giant brains the giant bulk which is mm-hmm. this pure energy substrate for the entire com- cosmos i see and it's out of this out of this bulk out of this pure energy realm which i tend to refer to just eat more easily as the energy verse that bubble universes are said to spring and that our our universe as vast as it is according to m theory is just a tiny bubble existing, three-dimensional bubble existing in a two-dimensional, almost infinitude of pure energy. So this is what string theory came to, and M theory in particular, to explain where all this energy is. It's there. It's at super high frequencies, much higher than any um, scientific instrument can detect, and way beyond our ability of our senses to detect but yet it's ever-present it interpenetrates us
1: Uh, it's it's just so funny to hear you say that and it thinks but sounds like you're talking about god you know there's these so many overlapping um contextual descriptions um you know that the 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 water seemed to be more muddier um, the harder science tries to explain the universe.
2: Yes, well, they keep trying, and they do. They—it's amazing what they have.
1: Oh my gosh! Yeah. Discovered and proposed,
2: mm-hmm. but I find it even more amazing that if you—you you can't reconcile all scientific theory into one theory. Mm. You know, there there are very different theories based on opinions of different scientists, but there is enough reputable sciences, scientists who uh, embrace things like m-theory even though it's largely unproven because they see how it answers some of these other fundamental questions like why is there an uncertainty principle and how can paranormal phenomenon be true they have to start uh, taking these into account Well, the other thing that the M theorists did, and one thing that we hear a lot about is that uh, David Bohm, who is actually probably not considered a string theorist, although many of the things that he uh, espoused and developed mathematics for are subsequently adopted by string theory. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the holographic principle so Bohm, in his early um, years, wrestled with the problem of basically, why, how is it possible that matter can be absolutely uh, propertyless until it's observed by an intelligent observer, and then springs into a particular form? And he posited that there must be, like Heisenberg posited, this realm, which he called pre-space. It's non-local in the language of quantum physics. It's two-dimensional. And he called this uh, this pre-space where uh, the implicate order existed. And he called this where all forms in the universe uh, or excuse me, all forms in the energy verse, in pre-space, were folded into two dimensions. And then when they emerge into the physical universe, they become part of the explicate order, and they unfold into three dimensions. So he developed an entire mathematics called Bohmian Mechanics,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: based on this notion. And it's still uh, a a heavy candidate for being a true uh, mathematics or reality.
1: So he's but theorized, if I if I have this correct, the two dimensional construct can can turn into a three dimensional construct. Exactly. Huh. Okay.
2: And that led him to the mathematics of holography, which existed in his lifetime. And using the math of holograms, he was able to apply that to his implicate, explicate order, and he came to the conclusion he was one of the first, maybe not the first, that our entire physical universe is a holographic projection from the two-dimensional energy verse
1: okay Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) so there's a template there's a folded template which he referred to as the implicate order Mm -hmm. that when, when drawn in so to speak to the three dimensional world of the physical universe takes on all those three dimensions so it reminds me of
1: much, are you familiar with um I, th- I think it's Miguel Ruiz author of The Four Agreements um I, th- I think the subtitle was uh, a Toltec Wisdom Guide have you heard this I definitely have heard of it and I've read some of it but I can't uh, I can't say I know it Well it, it reminds me that you know he I can't remember the exact phrasing but it's something like a fog um you know that we that life is is we see it um as it as an illusion, and um I think a lot of you know mystics speak in a similar way um so if we are a projection of a two dimensional universe, then in a sense everything is an illusion i don't know it's really hard to I mean, to To kind of wrap your head around that, because how can I even conceive of a two-dimensional space in the first place? And, um, I, I don't know. Where do you? How do you feel it's, about it's about that? It's very hard.
2: Yeah. It's very hard to wrap your head around two dimensions because yeah. our very language is uh, couched in three-dimensional terms for the most mm-hmm. part.
1: Yeah.
2: But uh, an analogy that ha- I have come across that has been used by saints and sages in near-death experiences is that the two-dimensional reality that they go to in transcendent experiences, in near-death experiences, is like images on a movie screen. They give all the appearance of Mm three-dimensionality, but they're not, in fact, three-dimensional and yet you can easily get caught up in a movie and feel yourself moving with the characters through space and interacting with a a fully fleshed out three-dimensional world even more so with virtual reality Mm -hmm, and yet and yet that's all two-dimensional so the description they give is that you're in a a luminous reality that is spaceless and matterless. It's not three-dimensional, but uh, as one near-death experiencer said, this reality that you experience in these transcendent states and near-death experiences is the clear, bright print from which a grosser, more imperfect print that we know as the physical universe is made. So the hologram, and for anything to have a holographic projection, there has to be a hologram. The hologram is the two-dimensional film that contains all the information, and if you shine light through it, it creates, uh, it's not exactly shining light through it, you have to shine laser light through it in a particular way, but it, creates a three-dimensional image as a result of that interaction between the information in the hologram and the light energy. So what the M theorists are saying, what Bohm said is that this energy verse is the source of the information. It's why we can't tell whether a atom uh we can't tell both its position and momentum. We have this mm-hmm. uncertainty until it manifests because the information, the properties that determine that aren't present in the physical world. The information and the properties that determine it are in the energy verse or so astral is, universe.
1: So it's, is it something like the we go to the movie theater... The characters that are on the screen, we see the light projecting them, um, but those characters are in unable to even recognize that there is a light projecting them in the first place.
2: Well, and that's true of movies,
1: mm-hmm. but
2: it's only an analogy. The way the, uh, the masters and mystics describe it is that we also are self-aware uh, in that Movie, But when we're on the physical world, in mm-hmm. the physical world, in our physical bodies, which are themselves holographic projections, we are more caught up in our own personal holographic projection. We feel it's, it's solid. We feel like we need to take care of it. And that it's going to, you know, give us pleasures of various kinds when we eat and when we sleep, when we have sex, when we do many things. Um, And so we tend to get really attached to taking care of that physical body. But just as the heart of the information that forms the entire physical universe is seated in the energy verse, the information, the feelings, the convictions, the thoughts, the will, that animates our physical body Mm
3: -hmm.
2: is actually present in our energy. So this comes full circle to where you start to ask the question. Our energy bodies are more naturally attuned to the ever-present reality of infinite love, infinite joy, infinite wisdom, infinite peace and calmness. And that this is why heaven, and this is really what I'm describing, it's the same way that all the heavens of the religions around the world are described as being purer, higher uh freed of limitations no need to eat no need to sleep that you are freed of the the burdens of the physical body that's really how heaven is described and that's what the near-death experiencers and the masters and mystics describe this higher plane of existence
1: so is is that higher bo- is that higher plane of existence the two-dimensional plane? Correct. Okay.
2: Correct. Yeah. And we're in that plane. This is where it really gets hard right. to, to even begin to visualize. Is that we're in that plane now?
1: hmm we're, we're both. Have, we're both. We're both and.
2: We're both and.
1: <laughs> hmm.
2: You can't have a physical body if it weren't interpenetrated by and supported in every instant by your energy body.
1: So is the... Which, you know, just just let close the
2: That's the same thing that M-theorists are saying about the physical universe. If you didn't have the holographic information present in the energy verse, the physical universe would cease to exist. The okay, physical now, universe is continuously created.
1: Uh huh. Now, if they, assuming they can prove that one way or another, doesn't that still leave a, a, another great mystery of what the um, what the origin is? Or does that somehow answer the origin?
2: Well, it is an answer to the origin. I can't say that it inherently answers that question. Mm -hmm. But an answer is that uh, God created and continues to create the universe through his intelligence or its intelligence or her intelligence applied to this energy verse, which then projects the physical universe. And so okay. the origin, the substrate of everything,
3: mm.
2: is the infinite consciousness of God. I use God because it's the easiest word to use, but you know, many people use other words. But God is infinite consciousness, and in that infinite consciousness is inherently powerful it's inherently joyful loving peaceful
1: well okay and there's that's that's the question though is how, how do we know that that's why that it is inherently loving only than, I can
2: only say that's because what the Saints and say sages testify okay and, and, you, and you
1: and you so you believe that
2: well, my personal experience, nowhere nowhere near as lofty as those people who I'm referring to,
3: mm-hmm.
2: the masters who I'm referring to, my own experience is that the more I go within, the more I identify with that subtle energy body, which is, you know, in terms of sort of esoteric teachings that are... are uh, our chakra system, it's our esoteric body. Almost all mystical paths describe this other inner world that you explore through meditation and other techniques. But the more I feel connected to that and the less I am barraged with sensory information and barraged just with the sensation of being a physical body, the more joyful, the more peaceful, the more uh, loved I feel. And that's why I say for me there's just no question because I've had that experience over and over and over and over again. Not in you know vast ways, maybe it's just a few seconds sometimes. But put it all together and it's utterly convincing to me. But I think for anyone to really believe it, just like I didn't necessarily believe it, I was open to it, they really need to go experience it. They really need to practice meditation, do these techniques that take you into that subtle self. And then you can say, ah, I, I get what these masters and mystics are saying. I, I now understand why they're so um, thrilled why they're so moved by their experience.
1: Well, when, when one experiences um, love, that sensation, is it the same biological chemical cause that creates that sensation as when you accomplish something um, creative and, you're, and you just get this rush of, I finally did it, I've completed it, or your favorite baseball team wins a game? Or you just went through, um, you know, went to the New York Philharmonic and orchestra and had this just, you know, uplifting experience, and all of these variations of pleasure. Is love through science? Can is it markedly different in the physiological explanation of that experience than the other reward experiences?
2: Well, I think that the distinction I would make there. Is that you feel first in your subtle body? You feel uh, that sense of completion and satisfaction of a creative project well done, or um, feeling a sense of you know wonderful communion with another person, whether it's a friend or a girlfriend or a, you know a, a parent. You feel that, but you feel it first in the physical body. I mean, in the subtle body. And then there is a cascade of effects from that feeling that are biochemical. And both of them are real. I think it's important for, for people to understand that when you say that the universe is an illusion or the, your body is an illusion, it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means it isn't what it seems.
1: All right, well, let's hold it right there, Joseph, and we'll pick this up when we come back from the last short break. This is Alan B. Smith for Paranormal Now on the Inception Radio Network. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Paranormal Now. This is Alan B. Smith, your host on the Inception Radio Network, um, which I am extraordinarily grateful to have this opportunity uh, that was given to me by the producers Joe Champion... Uh, M J Lucas and Bob Tarmac, who typically I wait to the end of the program to thank them, um, but you know I wanted to thank them now while we're still in the middle of the show here because the, these guys work really hard to bring an en- enormous number of hours of paranormal alternative radio to you, and you know they deserve they deserve the um, the regard um, for their efforts at that. that 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 they do and and um I, I just can't express how much um gratitude i have for them for not only just you know for for this program but for trying to get as much information out there that is otherwise not accessible um and it's true yes there are a lot of paranormal um radio programs that are streaming a lot of independent podcasts um but this network um, as far as internet streaming, is one of the largest. Um, and it's only because they, they put their blood, sweat, and tears and passion behind it. So, again, um, thank you, Joe, Bob, and MJ. And uh, taking us out of the break was Ray of Light by Madonna. Now, I want to continue this last thought we left off with uh, when I was speaking with uh, Joseph uh, author of *The Physics of God*, Joseph Selby, and we we're talking about uh, love. So, Joseph, I, I don't know if you wanted to sort of wrap up, um, you know, your thoughts on the, the the physiological reward system, and and anyway, I'll let you let I'll let you take it from there.
3: Well,
2: uh, thank you for that, and I'll see if I can uh, bring it back to a closure from where we started. So, the saints and sages say we have this subtle body. The astral body, the energy body, and that the origin of our finer feelings, our higher feelings, uh, and even negative emotions like anger and hate are in that energetic body. So, anytime we tune into one of those feelings, when we experience that feeling, whatever the cause, there is a cascade of physiological results from having that feeling and this is why uh, holistic health takes into account what you're thinking what you're feeling and that the very uh, power of those feelings can make you enormously healthy or can kill you prematurely because there is that connection but the feeling starts in your subtle body and then triggers the reaction in your physiological body so you you feel love as we say we feel it in the heart there's no there's no organ in the physical body that you know matches that
1: well i, I mean i could say through personal experience and i think everyone would say the same thing it, it feels different there is something unique and special. We differentiate between a crush on another person, infatuation for another person, a physical attraction for another person, and love. Love is this other category that crosses over so many other boundaries. Not just, it's a, it's the a same or similar feeling between the romantic relationship and You know, the relationship that you have with someone that you don't know, just you you have an altruistic love for that person and their well-being, um, when you see them suffer. Um, it's, it's a, like you, I think you said earlier, more of like a subtle sensation. Um, it, it does feel like a deeper well of, and I, I don't want to say emotion, but more of a sensation because I'm, I'm speaking of that, that bigger love that you feel, um, and because of that, you know, you have how many musicians and songwriters and philosophers and uh, religious philosophers, you know, leading their their thoughts with love and compassion, and that this is the way. This is this is how we should be living. This is the way to bring organization and take away chaos to eliminate it to bring peace and centeredness the, the you know it's always no, no one is saying hate is the way you know <laughs> no one is right. saying right i mean no no one is saying angst is the way it's it's always is love um and you know it, it is in my mind difficult to explain simply as a biological function um Though I'm not ruling that out, of course, because I think there is good science to suggest that, like, like you were sort of inferring before. But um, anyway, so we'll move on from the topic of love, because that's a topic that I love, and um, we'll. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'd really like to hear what you have to say. Um, do you a believe in aliens, as in extraterrestrials or interdimensional? Uh, visitations and um, if so is there a relationship between humans and those other beings an interesting question I guess I would
2: characterize myself as believing readily believing that there are aliens and quite readily believing that uh, aliens could have come to the Earth, could still be on the Earth. But I guess for me, it doesn't sort of inherently fascinate. I don't think we need aliens to explain past scientific development. I don't think we need aliens to save us, uh, I don't think we need aliens to allow us to live, you know, deep, fulfilling, loving lives. So they, I mean, I hate to be sound dismissive because I'm not really trying to be dismissive, but personally, it's just not that interesting to me because I think what I'm much more satisfied with is going deeper into the spiritual teachings that have been offered by uh, all the masters and mystics, because I've had so much uh, personal satisfaction with them.
1: So do you think that the curiosity, and often extremely intense curiosity, um, the preoccupation and study of extraterrestrial uh, beings, whether they exist or not, uh, is partially because we are seeking answers And seeking some sort of satisfying explanation for why we are here, who we are. And someone like yourself finds that you don't need that. Whether they exist or not is cool, but you are finding a certain amount of satisfaction and and a certain amount of answering through your, your spiritual path.
2: Correct. And my particular spiritual path that I follow... Uh, The teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda has, you know, plenty of room for there to be extraterrestrials. And Mm -hmm. in fact, uh, as you said, uh, trans-dimensional beings, Yogananda in an interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita mentioned that there were beings that lived on the surfaces of suns that were 10 miles tall. And he referred to the fact that there are vast numbers of other planets in our universe that have intelligent life. So uh, I'm quite at home with it Mm -hmm. as as a concept, and he was quite at home with it as a concept, but he didn't make the other connection that often gets made which may, as you were alluding, lead people to think they have answers that we need, uh, or figuring them out is an answer we need. He didn't go there. He said, you know, the deeper answers, the bigger answers, the cosmic answers are found in your own inner exploration of your own consciousness. And you don't have to go anywhere or learn anything outside of yourself to be able to do that.
1: Have you have you read Ram Dass' Be Here Now?
2: Oh yeah, it was an early inspiration for me getting into spiritual
1: teachings. Did it feel, Did you feel like it messed with your head a little bit?
2: Yes, but like many of my generation, I was messing with my head
1: at the same time. <laughs> right. Well, so, when I yeah when I when I read it, um, it was like it it did something to my mind. Do you know it it, it felt like. My mind was being shifted, you know, in slightly into an, an alternate world, you know, um, um, you know, not opinion, but a a state of mind. And, um, it was, it, it's an interesting read, um, when you sort of just let go, it, it, it is similar, as similar as you can through the reading and imagination as, as going on like an acid trip or a psilocybin trip or something like that. I, I just found mm-hmm. it, um, Almost magical in that sense, and um, spell binding and bounding, um, you know, literally. And uh, it, it makes me wonder: did he did he really go somewhere else and bring a sort of a code back from from that other maybe like we've spoken to of earlier the source of that that two dimensional um, substrate reality and and bring back in a, in a coded way that we can sort of absorb it.
2: Well, I think I, I can't tell you that I know Ram Das's thinking process, but he brought that out after he had spent time with uh, his spiritual teacher, Neem Karoli Baba
3: mm-hmm.
2: and he had begun meditating and uh, you know spent a lot of time with his with his teacher before he wrote that book. And I think what he was trying to do, my My feeling always has been that he was trying to get Westerners out of their rational mind to understand something that only can be experienced. Mm -hmm. So he had to take you on a little journey that was unlike any journey you'd ever been on before.
1: And I'd say it worked, for me at least, yeah. And it worked,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by it and, and moved by it, and uh, it was really uh, an important important book for me.
1: Yeah, and you know, I'm glad you said that. What what are some of the most important works um, that you've read or or figures or authors that have sort of guided you down this path to write this book, as it were?
2: Well, the main book that has guided me is um Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi Mm -hmm. it's it's been out since 1946 it's been read by millions of people there are something like 10 million copies have been printed since it was first published it was the first book written in first person by a realized spiritual master and there are many books that are records of what great spiritual teachers are saying. Mm-hmm. But as it is a story of their life and how they uh, experienced God and found God and understand God, it was, it is unique because it's in the the Western vernacular, it's not a book where he brings in lots and lots of uh, Eastern concepts that are difficult for us to understand. He explained everything to Westerners, and I think what continues to impress me is how much of a scientific foundation it has. So that's been a huge uh, wellspring for me. I can't tell you any other book that's had more impact on me. Um, I loved books like um, The Tao of Physics, The Dancing Wu Li, Masters. I always had a very strong scientific background, I think before I discovered meditation, which pulled me away from a strictly uh, scientific bent. I would have ended up as a microbiologist or a physicist. Uh, uh, I was very much going down that path, hmm. but it was books like the autobiography of the yogi and Be Here Now, and the Tao of Physics that really, you know, moved me away from that. So there's, there's, there's more here. There's a lot more here. Plus, uh, at the time I was in college, many of us were imbibing hallucinogenic. Substances, and I had a few very profound experiences that I could not explain rationally or with any uh, at that time uh, scientific explanation. And that that, in combination with these books, really sent me on you know a life journey to figure out how do I have that experience better. And continuously,
1: right, right. Yeah, I think I think yeah. Many people have come out the same, uh, with the same opinion as yourself, um, including Ram Das. And um, but I but I do wonder um, because we are talking about you know the the merging of science and um, you know and spirituality, and in a sense, you know, like look like Timothy Leary, what like what he was doing is. Um and he really was he has kind of a bad rap I think he he was trying to stick to the whole set and setting and and being responsible with the use of LSD. Um and I think originally especially he was using it as a scientific tool to expand our consciousness. Um you know, is there do you see a viable future where human beings can use um, substances, or, I don't know, some other technology to um, help us get in touch with that source, well, Respon- responsibly to, and, yeah.
2: I can only really speak to my own experience, and what I have found was that it wasn't consistent. I mean, that may have been in part because the, uh, the source of supply for me was probably inconsistent. But I did find that not all hallucinogenic experiences were like, uplifting, not mm-hmm. all of them were satisfying. Some of them were unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. And it convinced me that while there was a reality there that the Psilocybin or whatever I happen to be taking, put me in touch with. That reality was separate from the psilocybin. That the that the drug was just a means to make that connection, but it was always temporary.
1: Well, and do do you think that they they are you know as dangerous or evil, you know? The descriptive words that um, others might use, evil, but you know, like cocaine or, or heroin or meth, you know, um, crack cocaine, or you know, all these things, you know, are they? They're, they tend to be lumped in the same category of detrimental effects. Do they See, deserve yeah, that? Or?
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting question, and I. Personally, I'm very grateful for having had the experience, but I would never recommend it to someone. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had friends who came out of the 60s with not as much as they entered the 60s with, that Mm -hmm. uh, it really was detrimental to them. There is a, for an addictive personality, they are, as addictive as any other drug because they're so entrancing they're so energizing they're so uh, able to take you out of yourself and your your thoughts of the
1: day and your worries of the week mm-hmm well it's interesting but you say that because so many um, make the argument that it actually is good for uh, fighting addiction or can be used to, to counter addiction
2: Yeah, and I think that's a little bit like, you know, removing one thorn by using another thorn to do it. I think under proper supervision with someone who really, really knows what they're doing, Mm -hmm. uh, I I think it's probably true. And, you know, carefully controlled doses, the ability to be, you know, brought down from that experience quickly if it starts to go bad. I think...
1: Yeah, under supervision, all that...
2: Yeah, I think all that is true. I think they're just easier ways. And right. the easiest way I know is meditation.
1: Right. Well you know, I mean Terence McKenna, which I'm I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, he he always made the the um sort of snide remark argument that it's like, you know <laughs> it's well yeah, it's great. You can you can get in touch with with God through meditation, but who has time for it? You know, it's like in this day and age, it's it seems like well, you know what? If I can if I can just do this other thing, you know, in a couple of hours or in five minutes, I can I can you know touch the divine and and learn something about myself and um, you know I I know for myself I work on putting that time aside to meditate and um, it's usually at the end of the day when I'm tired and and it's harder to convince myself. Okay, come on, man, just. Just ten minutes. That's all you need. Just ten minutes. Put it aside. You can do it. Um, you know. So if it, I feel like, and I, and this isn't against you. Um, I feel like you know if it was so easy, more people would do meditation. So I think the the challenge is how to, how to convince people that the time invested in meditation is well worth the rewards that you re- you reap from it.
2: Yeah. Well, it's it's like all things and and wrapped up securely in human nature. I mean, you know, I know, that eating right is gonna make me healthier. But there's a little work involved. Mm-hmm. You and I both know that exercise is gonna make us a little healthier. But you have to work at it. Meditation is no different. It's not a, uh, uh, an easy slide into results. You do have to apply some will and discipline Uh, but I'm completely sold on it because now the benefits that I receive from it just so outweigh the effort that I have to put out the discipline I have to exert the time I have to take Mm -hmm. to do it so I just hope what people hear when when they hear me talk is not that they should meditate but that wow Maybe there's something I should experience here and give it a go if they're not already meditating. Uh, it is quite simply the greatest source of happiness and peace of mind that I know. And that I know I'm not tapping it to its fullest yet.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, we have about five minutes left Is there anything that you feel you really wanted to express and share that we haven't covered yet?
2: Well, my overarching purpose in writing the book is to, for people who already have a a belief in things spiritual and paranormal, to give them maybe a more firm foundation for it. But I'm especially hoping that people who are, have an interest in spiritual teachings or spirituality or meditation, but shy away from it because they think science has ruled out any validity to it. It's really for those people I've written this book because what I have found is there is nothing in any of the genuine spiritual teachings, the teachings that lie at the heart of uh, all religions, all spiritual paths, all traditions, that has been experienced directly by and testified to by the saints and sages, there's nothing that they say that isn't supported by aspects of science. It's not supported by scientific materialism, it's not supported by the people who are absolutely convinced that this material world is all there is. But if you can set them aside, if you can just sort of mentally say, okay, let me, let me go explore the guys who aren't scientific materialists, the women who aren't scientific materialists, and see what they're saying, you'll find there the support for what the saints and sages are saying and that there really is no line between them, no conflict between them. There is a strong foundational support for both of them in both disciplines.
1: Well, you know, everyone has their own explanation for what would be the solution for all the problems of mankind. You know, how do we get close to that that utopia as possible, and science has theirs, religions have theirs, Um, and, you know, some people might say, you know, as soon as we have free energy, as soon as energy is free, it's not going to cost anything, then that's going to be the major step towards, you know, a unified society and, you know, getting rid of, you know, lack of food and um, inability to, you know, have enough for all people. Um, I I don't buy it. I think that would be very, very helpful. but I don't buy that that's the one-off solution. Um, What about you? Do you think how do you think we get there? You've got two minutes left, if you can fit that in there.
2: Well, I I happen to be involved with a kind of a movement now that is uh, quite simply uh, putting forward the notion everybody that you have to be the change you want to see in the world. That it starts with you. And if you don't change your consciousness, if you're not, more harmonious, if you're not more thoughtful towards other people, uh, you don't create any uh, ripples in the pond of consciousness that affect other people. You just stay in the same level of uh, problem thinking. So if the world is really going to make a significant change, it's gonna come from individuals changing themselves first, and then with that change of consciousness, doing things differently. Uh, it may be that what they're inspired to do is to go find free energy, which would be great. But if we have the same state of consciousness we have now throughout the world, which is pretty tense, free energy could just be a disaster, right? It, <laughs> it could be in the, in the wrong hands and... Mm. Uh, cause more problems than it solves. So yeah, like much of science. No, oh, go ahead. Oh, you go
1: I was just going to say much of science is the same. It's what we do with it.
2: Yeah. So be the change you want to be in the world. And mm-hmm. my number one advice for people who believe that and want to do that is meditate. Because that really... Changes you from the inside
1: out. You know what I can I can attest to that um, in my small own small way. Um, so, Joseph, where do where do we get the book, um, and where do you want people to go to, you know, to get in touch with you and to to follow you, social media, etc.
2: Um, the book is available through the usual online outlets, um, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. Uh, you can get it from the publisher, which is New Page Books. If you want to know more about me and uh, some of the blogs that I'm working on, you can go to my website, which is physicsandgod.com. And I have uh, blogs coming out regularly. And there is more information about the book there and links to where you can get it.
1: All right. Great. Author of The Physics of God, Joseph Selby, thank you so much for coming on to Paranormal Now. My pleasure. Yeah, it's actually my pleasure indeed. Uh, I really hope that um, we can have you back on the program in the future. Are, are you planning on any other works at all in the in the foreseeable future?
2: Uh, not too soon. Uh, this one took me four years to research and write. I have another idea that could take uh, equally long is uh, the psychology of God.
1: Okay, the, all right.
2: Uh, most of this book focuses on physics and uh, the kind of hard sciences where the soft sciences also have their theories that are both material and non-material. And I'd love to be able to give people a, an avenue, a path to seeing how psychology also supports a, uh, an inner path to uh, connecting, an inner path to transcendence.
1: Okay, well then, yeah, let's stay in touch If see if we can come up with an excuse to have you back on again because I have a lot of questions I was unable to get to you. Um, Again, thank you for coming on to Paranormal Now. This is Alan B. Smith. I'd like to thank Ken Cherry from Epic Voyages Radio for helping make this podcast possible. And to all of you out there, live in the mystery.